You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. I regard Dr. Douglas Campbell to be the most important scholar on the Apostle Paul working today. In my view, Western Christendom has over the centuries drastically truncated the power of Paul's gospel in one of two ways, either by making it into a contract which is available to all but doesn't actually guarantee salvation to anyone, or by making it into a covenant which does actually guarantee salvation for all to whom it goes, but then only goes to a limited elect few. Dr. Campbell, with his groundbreaking scholarship, gets us back on track by showing us how to read Paul coherently and to understand that what Paul received from God was a revelation of an irrevocable covenant between God and humanity, already ratified in Christ, and destined to be fully realized when God will be all in all at the culmination of the ages. The core of Dr. Campbell's scholarly argument is contained in his epic work, The Deliverance of God. For the general public, he has an excellent overview of Paul's life and thought entitled Paul, an Apostle's Journey. Meanwhile, Dr. Campbell's most recent book, Pauline Dogmatics, strikes a balance between accessibility and scholarly precision, providing a comprehensive and coherent presentation of both the content and the implications of Paul's theology. Welcome, Dr. Douglas Campbell, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Dr. Campbell, I'd like to begin with a quote which I think sets the stage for what's at stake, and what's at stake is ultimately nothing less than the character of God. In Pauline Dogmatics, we find you declaring rather forthrightly at one point, a God who creates people destined for annihilation at best and enduring torture at worst is a monster. And that's a strong statement, and I wonder if you can give us some background on this statement and why you made it. Yeah, well, uh, I think it's true. That God creates people to get burned forever. It's about as bad as it gets. Uh, Even kind of killing everybody forever, that's not much of an improvement. Um, There is something quite horrific about this once we sit down and think about it. We often call the people who do this sort of thing in human history, we call them monsters. We don't have a problem with saying, when Stalin purged the Ukraine some years ago, tens of millions of kulaks, that was a monstrous thing to do. And it was. Um, something in us revolts from the sheer evil of activity that inflicts that amount of pain and suffering on people. Um, we have a further advantage, though, when it comes to God, because we have this definitive disclosure of what God is really like through Christ. And a God who offers up his only child for us, while we were still hostile, um, that is not a God who condemns people. To, that's the opposite of a God who condemns people to be tortured, mm-hmm. humiliated, and annihilated. That's a God who does anything to save people from being annihilated, tortured, and humiliated. So we know that this this portrait of God, um, if if we endorse it, an annihilationist or a, a kind of a, what is it, Hart calls him an infernalist. We, we know this just has to be badly, badly off. Uh, so we should we should resist it. We should resist it. It's a false account of the gospel. Now, you said in, your, in the book Pauline Dogmatics that this discussion often comes up in classes where you are bringing up the topic of election. Yeah, I can do. You've got to navigate the question of agency whenever you're doing anything biblical or theological. You've got to give some account of why people act in the way that they do. What I think one has to do almost straight away is begin to re-educate a large number of liberals who can't conceive of agency in any other way or have been taught to think about agency as kind of a space um, where you have a zone of of free movement and options and choice conceived of in, in that sense. And that will get you into big trouble theologically, because it will set up um, a zero-sum relationship with uh, any anybody else, anything else that's powerful and important and free. The more that other, other thing acts upon you, the less freedom you have. So you have a zero-sum relationship between the freedom of someone else, something else, 
and your own freedom. And straight away, you're going to get into a, a conundrum with God. And both, of, both ends of this conundrum are bad. Uh, you're either going to end up hitting your own agency, becoming Pelagian, and, and reducing God to a minor player, or you're going to hit God's agency because you really care about God, and that looks as though it's squeezing your agency. So the first thing you've got to do is pull your students into a slightly more mature theological account of agency, go back to the fathers, go back to Jesus himself, and and help people to see that when something like God or like a, even like a parent gets involved with you, uh, your agency is enhanced by that. There's a mutually constitutive interaction. And that means you, you kind of no longer have to worry about God acting on you and eliminating your response and sending a whole bunch of people to hell just because we know there's hell and it has to be populated. You, you, know, you just no longer have to go with that picture. And uh, what a what a liberating thing it is! <laughs> you can finally turn away from that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, with regard to election, I like the following statement that you make in Pauline Dogmatics, where you wrote, "We need to discipline our analogies concerning election and divine causality, and also in due course concerning freedom, in relation to the definitive information we have had revealed to us through Jesus. Consequently, election needs to be understood in a loving way." It can be seen in this light that it refers to God's initiative, which is also creative and giving. Love initiates and in God creates and gifts life to us so that God might share the triune communion with humanity. It is therefore single and inclusive. Everyone created has been destined in love for divine communion. Yeah, I, I like that statement. I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with all of it. <laughs> I, I kind of see uh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a, some of Bart and Torrance maybe in the background there. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, what's going on there is something that Bart did recognize, which is the only information we have about God's purposes, whether we think of those above us, ahead of us, or behind us before the foundation of the world, so to speak, uh, comes from Christ. So our understanding of election has to be Christocentric and Christological. There's really only one election that matters, which is for creation through Christ. So creation is kind of created through Christ and for Christ, which means that there's one positive, loving purpose that flows through God uh, for all of us. So we've got to understand election uh, in this universal sense. And once you've gotten hold of that, you see that the New Testament does say this quite a lot when it talks about what's happening before the foundation of the world. It talks about Jesus's wisdom and the word. Everything that happens that's created is happening through him and for him. And this means that election is is, is our friend. It, it's something that puts pressure on us uh, from God's positive purpose. It has pastoral value wherever we are, whatever our situation, whatever we see, God's purpose is for the good. God wants to fold us and that other person and that other situation into the goodness and the good purposes of God. So, yeah, Bart helped us enormously here to see again what we should have seen all along which is in Paul, and Bart got it from places like Ephesians 1.4. God predestined us all in love, in Christ, from before the foundation of the world to be folded into communion with him. So once, once you get that, once you get that, um, you are going to have to start grappling with something rather wonderful, which is the universal good purposes of God the good purposes of God for everyone and everything. And you're going to have to start thinking about how that purpose unfolds you now and, and pulls you towards a kind of a universal destiny. Well, that, that ties in nicely with uh, chapter 13 of your book, uh, Paul, an Apostle's Journey. And that chapter is entitled God Wins. And in that chapter, you point to two passages of Scripture 
which help us to see that perhaps God really does plan to win by bringing a good end to creation, which involves the final salvation of all. And these two passages are 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Romans chapter 5. So I'd like to ask you a bit more about these passages in Romans and 1 Corinthians. I know when it comes to Romans 5, specifically in verse 17, it's argued by some that Christ only beats Adam for those who specifically receive Christ. As Paul puts it, according to the NIV translation, for if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So while all are under condemnation in Adam, isn't the victory of Christ only for those who receive it now in this lifetime? And isn't Romans 5 actually addressed to the Christians in Rome and not to everyone in Rome? So shouldn't that tell us that Paul can't have everyone in mind in Romans 5? Yeah, people do fight about this passage, It's and it's certainly true that it's addressed to Jesus' followers at Rome. doesn't follow from that, though, that it's only talking about them. You can make universal statements um, irrespective of who you're actually writing to. I mean, if I write to you and say the sun is shining today, I, I don't mean it's only shining for David Artman. I mean the sun is shining for everybody today. I'm just communicating that to you. Um, so in these verses, 15 through 17, uh, I think Paul is doing something pretty straightforward. Um, he wants to articulate a parallel between Christ and Adam from verse 18. He wants to say they're similar, but before he says that, he's a good theologian. Mm-hmm. So he wants to show that this parallel is an asymmetrical parallel in which Christ is vastly superior to Adam. So only once you've got superiority do you understand that it's in parallel? And he's, it's pretty straightforward. Um, if Adam sins, he dies, and then everybody who's descended from Adam, they sin, and so they die. So you've got all these little kind of acts of sin, and then you've got all these deaths, and in this way, death spreads to all of humanity. Um, but when Christ comes, he does one act of, of, of obedience, submission, it says in here, and everybody lives. So the difference in power and significance in this text is almost immeasurable. Mm-hmm. Almost immeasurable. So to limit what Paul is saying about Christ's significance here completely misses the point of what Paul is actually saying. I have no time for it. <laughs> <laughs> the argument is based on the vast superiority of Christ. So, you know, live with it. This is what <laughs> And then let's buttress this with some very basic theological inferences. So who's in play here? If, if Let's just run with the kind of bad reading for a minute. Um, Adam's, Adam's really important and Christ is really important. And Paul is comparing them, but he's only applying Christ to the proportion of humanity that accepts him. Okay, standard contractual reading of Paul's gospel, which you and I don't like. What are the implications of this? The implications of this are the significance of Adam and his influence and his determination of humanity is actually more significant uh, because it's basal than Christ. And it's probably numerically much more extensive as well. So Christ Christ comes and he affects, I don't know how many, what percentage of humanity has been saved? through 23? Yeah, 23. Well, and, and you're clearly a, an optimistic. I mean, if you're, alive, <laughs> you're like a half percent, like 2.5%, right? So somewhere between 2.5% and 23% of humanity gets saved by Jesus. So somewhere between 97.5% and uh, 77% is actually still killed by Adam. Now, who, who's more significant in right. that equation? And then yeah. it, even worse it gets even worse it's like let's just remind ourselves who adam is well he's just someone who got made out of mud by god and breathed on jesus is god with us so god's creative plan through adam the mud creature is 73 to 97 percent effective and god's personal intervention in person through the person of Christ, is, is only between 23 and 2.5% effective. I mean, that's to be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. 
<laughs> God shows up in person to solve the problem, but, you know, it didn't work as well as it really needed to. Well done for trying, God. You know, circle back and give it another go. I mean, this is this is not a good theological inference here. How about you and I agree that when God decides to solve a problem and does a personal intervention, that solution is 100% effective because we believe in a God who is 100% God. How about we just go with that? <laughs> I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to go that direction. All right. Now I'd like to ask you a bit more about 1 Corinthians 15. Here Paul does say that as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But the NIV seems to have translated it to mean that Christ is the first fruits. Then when he comes at the end, he will only be including those who belong to him, meaning only those who have come to believe in him. And then at that time, the son will subject himself to the father so that God may be all in all. But this all in all really only means all of all of those who have believed in him at the time of his coming and are therefore included in him. So what are your thoughts about this passage? There's an element of truth in that view. But again, you've got to press the inference. You've got to press what's implicit. I think Paul himself probably believed in a limited uh, resurrection. When you read him carefully, there's no question that everybody who gets resurrected is, is saved. They're Jesus followers. They're explicit. They're confessing that Jesus is Lord. They're bending the knee, all this kind of stuff. So everybody in, in Adam dies. Everybody in Christ gets raised. The question is, when Paul is looking at the significance of Jesus, as he is in Romans 5, much more directly, does he limit that? Uh, so I think he just hasn't always joined up all the dots, but for the reasons that we just deduced, when Paul looks at Jesus, he says the right thing, which is the significance of this guy, the implications of this guy, the the kind of ontological impact of this guy vastly outweigh the impact of Adam. So the, the direct implication of what Paul is committed to here is everybody gets saved in Christ. Um, which is, it's probably not going to make everybody happy. I, th I do think that's what, what's going on. So I, I talk about Paul being an implicit Universalist. I don't think he was always explicit. I think every now and again he would say, yeah, God's going to wipe a whole bunch of people out. Um, it depends a little bit on how angry he is at the time of writing and, and what exactly he's looking at. But when he's looking directly at Christ and thinking about his significance, he gets it right. He gets it absolutely mm -hmm. right. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the redeemer. Jesus is the one who will save us at the end of the age. So I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty happy. Um, with where he goes. And we could almost say, even if he was himself consciously limiting, so in Christ all will be made alive, we know, on the basis of what he says, we can give full force to that statement in Scripture and say that really does mean all <laughs> will be made alive. Everybody gets made alive. Um, maybe, he said, maybe he knew more than he actually thought when he wrote those words. Well, there's that the word that gets translated end there is the Greek word telos, which right. in my, in my mind speaks a little more of the full realization of that, which was purposed by God from the beginning, not like, well, that's all folks. And that's the end. Right. That's the end of the show. Could you say something right. about that? Which verse are you looking at? David? Uh, well, the First uh, Corinthians 15, after all things are concluded, and then, then comes the end. Well, the end comes, the telos? Yeah, the telos. Yeah, I'm just trying to find it here. It's a long chapter, you know. It's got 58 verses. Um, it's verse 24. Oh, uh, back in 24. Then comes the telos. Yeah, we spend a lot of time worrying about how to translate telos. It also can mean indirect taxation. I don't think it's unfair to be thinking in relation to telos at times that there's a notion of goal and end. Um, it's a little bit like a finishing line to a race, which is called a telos. Um, the telos for a race is both an end and a goal. 
Like the end is mm-hmm. the goal. That's where you're going. That this is the telos of everything. I mean, that's true. This is where everything's going. God does want to resurrect us all and gather us into a communion, which is what he says. A, a very important verse for me is Romans 8, 29, uh, where Paul talks about those whom God chooses and um, justifies and glorifies um, are all going to bear the image of the resurrected son. He will be the firstborn of many siblings. That is the telos of creation, is to be drawn into this communion as resurrected people. So, yeah, I think that's fair. I think we're heading towards the goal of all creation. Incredibly important that the goal of creation is eschatology. It's this resurrected gathering of people with their spiritual bodies in an unsullied, pure, sin-free way uh, around the sun and the spirit. Yeah. Well, one of the things I appreciate about your scholarship is how you encourage us to read Romans from the perspective of Paul's main argument revealed towards the end of the letter in Romans eleven thirty two, where where Paul concludes, "For God has bound everyone over to disobedience, so that He may have mercy on them all." Why is it important that we read Romans backwards, as it were, beginning with the conclusion of Paul's argument? Yeah, it's, it's very simple. And that is that despite how it's often read, Romans is not a piece of systematic theology because Paul didn't write systematic theology. Systematic theology hadn't really been invented when he was writing. He's a pastor and an evangelist and a missionary. So he's writing letters to congregations that are in trouble. And they're in trouble because of very practical problems. They've got people coming in that are confusing them. There are things that they're doing they shouldn't be doing. There are things that they are doing they need to turn away from. So he sends all this advice in these letters, which is underpinned and driven by theological positions. But you can't just read off the surface of the letter um, to get a systematic theology. He's not writing for the church universal. He's not spelling things out. A follows leads to B, leads to C. You've got to kind of work through the practical surface of the text to figure out what his theology is that lies underneath them. So Romans is not written in a systematic theological order. So you have to process all the practicalities to figure out what's actually driving it. And, and, and once you've done that, I would suggest the really good stuff shows up in sort of chapters 5, 8, and 11, that's where we get the um, Paul's theological presuppositions, scholars would say, peeping mm-hmm. through. You see, that's what's really driving the argument. And I think chapter 11, um, I mean, commentators are usually getting a little tired by the time they get to chapter 11, maybe a little uncharitable. But I think it's a fantastic chapter. And it's really, really interesting for the purposes of our discussion because Paul is grappling directly with a group of people who are resisting the purposes of God. This is Israel. And he loves Israel. He loves the Jews. He's a Jew. Uh, There's only a small number of Jews have become Jesus followers. God loves the Jews. This is God's people. And they're resisting the coming of Jesus. They're not bending the knee. They're not following him. They're not acclaiming him as Lord. So we've got a microcosm of the whole universalist problem. What do we do with sinful humanity who are resisting calling Jesus as Lord. So what does Paul do with the Jews? And he navigates, he doesn't eliminate human accountability. There's, there's plenty of agency here. He doesn't let Israel off the hook. He says, if you, re- if you reject Jesus, this is, this, is, this is on you. This is a bad thing. That's chapter 10. However, your rejection of Jesus is not the last word. The last word is that for a number of different reasons, God is going to win this contest. God is going to win you over. And you are all eventually going to accept Jesus as Lord. So when it comes to the contest between a loving God and a disobedient people, God will win. Not in a brutal way, not in a dominating way, but God will win. God's purposes will triumph and all of Israel will be saved. So Paul comes to that conclusion for rock-solid theological reasons, which is when God commits to you, God never withdraws that commitment. Never, never. God stays committed to the people 
whom he's committed to. So let's push that back to chapter 8. Let's think about who, who God is committed to and what sort of God we're involved with. And I think when we do that, we see God as the creator is going to act in exactly the same way as God as the creator of Israel. There's no reason for God's love for Adam and the children of Adam to be any different and any less irrevocable than God's love for the Jews. So I think we can take every confidence from Romans 11 uh, that these, a similar sort of situation is going to hold for the rest of humanity. And that, that's because of Jesus Christ. We, we know the sort of God that we're involved with. And this is, this is a God of irrevocable, unshakable, indefatigable love. <laughs> well, uh, since we're discussing Romans 11.32, I'd like to share with you a quote about it from the famous uh, scholar and theologian C.H. Dodd. And he had this to say about Romans 11.32. The final aim of God in consigning all men to disobedience is a state in which God's mercy is as universally effective as sin has been. In other words, it is the will of God that all mankind shall ultimately be saved. It has been thought incredible that Paul should have committed himself to such an absolute universalism, but he may be allowed to have meant what he said in its full sense, that God would have mercy upon all. If we really believe in one God and believe that Jesus Christ in what he was and what he did truly shows what God's character and his attitude towards men are like, then it is very difficult to think ourselves out of the belief that somehow his love will find a way of bringing all men into unity with him. And I was wondering how you would assess Dr. Dodd's conclusions about Romans 11.32. Yeah, well, I was surprised when you quoted that to me because it's, it, it is a while since I've read Dodd. But I hadn't had him pegged as a universalist. But I, I must say, I think his reasoning is impeccable. He was a very clear thinker, and he was able to write books in the good old days at Oxford and Cambridge, where you didn't have to have many footnotes, and the books didn't have to be very long. So they they were actually beautifully clear. <laughs> they had to be reasoned, uh, but he wrote this beautiful, clear stuff. And uh, yeah, I could I take my hat off to him. I mean, I think he phrased the whole situation beautifully with that quote. Well, let's go back to chapter 13 of Paul and Apostle's journey. And there you state that God's plan in Christ is defeated. If any of the people God created good are eternally lost, ultimately to the nothingness of death, if God is going to win, we must expect everyone to be drawn back into fellowship with him through the work of Jesus. Uh, but as I've heard most evangelicals talk about it, the people who are lost to God aren't just lost to the nothingness of death. They are lost to an eternity of conscious torment. Evangelicals also usually point out that while Adam and Eve may have been created good, since the fall of Adam and Eve, all humans enter the world fallen, having lost the image of God, and are born as rebels and enemies of God. So it's only when they become believers and receivers of Jesus that they become children of God. So could you say more about why you think people still have goodness in them at their birth and why you think they're not all born rebels and sinners? Right, yeah. Um, so what's peeping through the cracks there is the way some evangelicals are operating, I think, with a, without realizing it. They don't mean to do this, but they're operating with a, a Christology that's not doing enough work. And their basic principles are not being drawn from a, a Christocentric understanding of God. They're being drawn from a, a God that we know prior to Christ. <laughs> and he's actually a different God. Or there's a very different understanding of God here, which is a God of retribution. And if, if your God is characterized by retribution, that's the fundamental characteristic of God. It's not a failure. If people screw up, you have to punish, punish them. That's, that's almost... A, a direct extent, a vindication of your implacable, just character. But the difficulty they've gotten themselves into is they've detached Christ from their doctrine of creation, which is, uh, again, they don't mean to do this, but, but once someone points it out to you, you, you suddenly go, geez, this is something I have to repent of and repent pretty darn quickly. Because what you've done is you've actually lapsed into a functional Marcionism. Uh, we mustn't detach Christ from God's creative purposes. We tend to do this, but the New Testament tells us not to do that. 
Jesus is constantly being plugged in to God's creative purposes because Jesus is God. <laughs> so Jesus is God. He's involved in creation, redemption, um, and uh, the final consummation. Because Jesus is plugged into God's creative purposes, I think we have to see Jesus as involved with humanity and the image of God that's present within humanity, which means that humanity is fundamentally positive. God's purposes for us are seen in his beloved child. And that's indelible. You can't erase that. You can't turn your back on it. You have to commit to the idea that people are fundamentally good. Now they're shot through. We are shot through with evil. We are compromised, we are broken, we are impure, we are hostile to God. There's a hell of a lot of bad stuff going on in us. But it's it's undeniable that there's also good stuff going on as well. We are, as my good friend Jeff McSwain would say, a simile. I mean, he didn't invent that, but he, he's written some wonderful books on it. The simile, it's very important. Luther's simile, Justus et Peccator, we are in Adam fully, and we are in Christ fully. And with the eyes of faith, we're forbidden to say that the image of Adam is superior to the image of Christ. Well, one of the points you make in Paul and Apostle's journey is that we have another quite strong card to play when it comes to Christ not being defeated with any one of us, and it has to do with the ultimate salvation of unbelieving Israel. And you spoke a little earlier about this, but could you say a little more about this? Yeah, we talked a little bit about this, and I think it's it's really interesting because a lot of people object to election uh, to kind of universal salvation um, because they they're worried that it's important that God doesn't overcome human freedom, and they're thinking like and they're thinking very understandably. I mean, if you're American. Um, your whole kind of political narrative is standing up for freedom against a foreign tyrant. And so insofar as the tyrant is acting on you, uh, your freedom is being occluded and you must resist and revolt and rebel and create the city on a hill. So freedom is seen as an obstacle to a powerful entity like a monarch acting upon you. And there's this zero-sum relationship. But this is ultimately, when you press into it, theologically quite inadequate what we need to do is free ourselves from this oversimplified understanding of freedom and press into a more mature theological understanding of freedom by looking at Christ, who walked very, very closely and obediently with his Father, uh, unswervingly obedient, and yet in that obedience shows us the fullness of freedom. You want to know what something's fr- what freedom looks like in a human being, you have to look at Jesus Christ. And this means that if you're not thinking like a liberal, this whole problem of how God's activity and our activity fit together becomes much, much less difficult. And this is how Paul thought. He never thought of human human freedom as being a problem for God. He thought of human sinfulness as being a problem for God. He thought of the way we abuse our freedom and rupture our relationship with God. That's a problem for God. And that's the problem that God overcomes in Romans 9, 10, and 11. God loves the Jews, and he refuses to let them go. They're like a wandering, errant, teenage child, and God wears them down (laughs) and eventually hauls them back in, into fellowship with them and does so completely, and does so as we would expect God to do that, which is, Everybody gets pulled back into fellowship with him. So this is this is a really instructive section of Romans. It's very important that we don't read it like modern people. It's very important that we enter into this argument thinking more like an ancient person. And then we can see the implications for election and for universalism much more clearly. So the, the inference is that since God will win all of mostly disobedient Israel, we can infer that God will win all of mostly disobedient humanity and that God will not let humanity go any more than God will let Israel go. So that God really then is a covenantal God committed to all permanently and irrevocably. Yep. Yep. That's it in a nutshell. Yep. I I mean, I I can't really see any way around this. (laughs) 
<laughs> I can't see any way around it. And I can't think why you want to find a way around it, but you know, yeah. people do. <laughs> people are funny. Well, you remarked that all of this leaves us with what Paul actually said, and Paul was not an explicit universalist. However, we are entitled to think that Paul was an implicit universalist, and that if we don't follow out the implicit universalism of Paul, we unleash horrible internal contradictions in his thinking. Right. Could you say some more about that? Yeah, well, it's it's these uh, functional Marcionite contradictions that we've talked about. If we if we don't push through uh, universalism for Paul as a whole. We've got God being a universalist with the Jews, but not a universalist with the pagans. And there aren't really any good reasons for saying that because Christ is not just the Messiah for Paul. He's not just the person who's in charge of Israel. He's also the creator who's in charge of humanity. You can't have God acting through Christ in fundamentally qualitatively different ways um, vis-a-vis two different parts of humanity. Then you've, then you've got a kind of a bifurcated God and things really start to fall apart. So it's, it's much better just to maintain a consistent Christocentric emphasis. Mm-hmm. Well, you make an interesting observation. You say that we get to a point where Paul reinterprets Paul. Could you say something about this? Yeah, that's right. Because even if I'm permitted to say that he's implicit and he's not completely explicit because he will talk on occasion about um, the wrath of God falling and annihilating unbelieving humanity. That's, that's pretty clear in First Thessalonians 5. It's pretty clear in First Corinthians 3, a couple of other places. There's, there's a sense in which those who have not joined the church in Paul's day, there's this great unwashed mass, mass of pagans. Uh, he thinks they're going to get wiped out. So I think that is in Paul. But I don't think he is a functional Marcionite when he looks at Christ. When you look at Christ, he really wants us to take Jesus seriously as the creator as well as the redeemer. It's very clear about that. First Corinthians 8, 6. Jesus is Lord through whom everything is made and for whom we all exist. Uh, Colossians 1. I think Paul wrote Colossians. And it's, again, it's very, very clear. Christ is this wisdom figure through whom everything is made and everything exists. Um, so th- if this is the case, Paul is not, if you sit him down across the table and say, Paul, is, 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 is Jesus' influence on humanity kind of suddenly on holiday here at the end of the age? I, I think he would say, oh, gosh, no, <laughs> of course not. Um, he's just not focused on that, that question when he's, when he's upset about the pressure that his converts are under, whether it's at Corinth or Thessaloniki, and he starts to get angry. He starts to think about this judgment scenario, which is how most people thought in relation to outsiders. But when he thinks about Christ, he thinks in universal terms. He doesn't separate Jesus from God's created purposes. I think we interpret Paul at his most Christologically consistent. If there's a tension, you go with the Trinitarian stuff, because that's the stuff that's most important. And when you do go with that stuff in Paul, you do end up with this inclusive God and this kind of universal embrace. Well, you conclude chapter 13 of Paul and Apostle's journey with the following quote in which you want to make sure that you are not being cowardly when it comes to using the dreaded word universalist. And you write, this is kind of a long quote, but I really like it. As soon as the dreaded word universalist is used, a lot of people just get off the train. But I hope it is obvious by now that this is unnecessary. Even more than this, it might be necessary to stay on the train to preserve God's integrity, along with the integrity of Paul's gospel. Universalism, in the sense I am using it here, is a defense of God's integrity. We shouldn't want God's plan to fail. God is God. God gets what he wants eventually, and God's work is compassionate and perfect. It follows that we should resist reducing Christ in size, making him smaller and less significant than Adam and his work. This is to get things the wrong way around. The plan in Christ is far bigger, better, and more rigorous than anything that happens foolishly because of Adam and Eve. So perhaps we need to put things slightly more strongly. Let me say that I know as yet of no good theological arguments that lead me to expect another outcome regarding the scope of the future resurrection besides universalism. No other scenario seems to be grounded in Jesus so strongly. I expect everyone to be raised in glory, although some rather more shamefacedly 
than others. So could you uh, unpack this quote a little more? And I, I kind of um, I'm resonating a little bit with you because in writing my own book, there were certain points in which I found myself writing something. And then I thought, okay, uh, <laughs> yeah. am I really going to put that out there? Yeah. And yeah. so yeah. Uh, yeah. that was very strong. Yeah. Uh, well, you can see a bit of a journey has been happening uh, in terms of rhetoric. It, it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? Um, people have been taught to treat universalism as a, a kind of a red flag. Um, and if you hear that, you disengage uh, from what's being said and you just walk away because that's, quote, heretical, unquote. Uh, so you're taking a risk with certain constituencies if you do say you're a universalist or if you hit that too strongly. You are in danger of letting certain people just, yeah, get off the train, as I put it, which is not what I want. I want people to hang in there in the conversation long enough to hear why I might be suggesting that this is the case and to listen to the, the pressure that's coming through from Christology. And there, there are lots of good reasons for wanting that conversation to continue. I want the folks I'm talking with to feel the full impact of Christology. And I, if, if they have genuine objections and insights here, reasons why this doesn't apply in the way I think it does, I, I need to hear that. I need them to hang in the conversation long enough to tell me mm -hmm. where I'm missing the implications. So I want to keep that conversation going. And you can do that sometimes by soft peddling universalism and being a little bit more, quote, agnostic, unquote, or, or, or hopeful, a hopeful universalist rather than a confident universalist. You know, it's up to God and there are all these caveats and there are all these caveats and it is up to God. <laughs> this all is true. Uh, but at the same time, the worry is that that's on the one hand, a rhetorical strategy, on the other hand, an act of cowardice in which we're not standing up for the integrity of God the way we understand it, and we're not affirming those who have stuck their necks out and probably paid quite a price for it. What are you going to do? So, yeah, um, my, my students, whom I have learned so much from, and on this, on this question as on many others, um, just kind of challenged me. They said, well, what do you really think? And I said, well, I don't, I, I'm not really a hopeful universalist. I am a universalist. And they said, well, you know, just put it out there, man. So, uh, <laughs> well, I found, you know, that was good advice, you know, <laughs> just said, okay, well, fine. <laughs> well, I know there are some people that don't like that word universalist, but I found that for, it's funny for Christians, universal is good when it comes to sin, but it's bad when it comes to salvation. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. then for those that are outside of the church and you're talking to them, they don't want to be involved in Christianity because precisely because it's not universal. They yeah. they want they want a universal. They want they their world. It. The pain world. Get it. <laughs> well, I mean, their world is interconnected with all kinds of people. They can't separate all things out. And so, if if it's not a message of universal good news, they don't want to be a part of it. And yeah. and I noticed I looked for what you'd written in Pauline Dogmatics because you reproduced some of Chapter Thirteen. In Paul and Apostles' Journey and Pauline Dogmatics. But then I was reading and I noticed that in Pauline Dogmatics, you added to this quote as it relates to preserving God's integrity. You added this comment. So you're writing in Pauline Dogmatics. Furthermore, it might be necessary to stay on the train to preserve God's integrity along with the integrity of Paul's gospel. And I was reading along and then this sentence came along. As far as I can tell, Jesus is still on the train. <laughs> I thought, okay, okay, a little bit of editing going on there. We're putting Jesus on the train now. So could you say a bit more about what it yeah, means for yeah, Jesus to be on the train? train? Yeah, well, Pauline Dogmatics is an attempt to be relentlessly Christological and to unfold everything in Paul from a starting point of Jesus as Lord. You unpack that. What does it mean? It mean first of all, it means that Jesus has told you that Jesus is Lord. Is an act of revelation that's taken place with the help of the Holy Spirit. And then we unpack that to get our account of the church and our account of salvation and all that kind of stuff. So as I, I say to the students, I'm basically, uh, we're starting off at the, the base station here of Jesus on the train. And my plan is to stay on the train as long as Jesus is on the train. I'm trying to figure out where Jesus is. And if he's still on the train, I'm still on the train if he gets off the train. 
I get off the train. And the reason I do that is to encourage them to recognize when they're bringing in considerations and warrants that really aren't, strictly speaking, Christological. And this is what tends to happen in the universalism debate. People will quote scripture against a Christological inference as if that's decisive. And really, I want to flip that around and say, hey, listen, you bring all your scriptural work in captivity and subjection to the feet of Christ. You don't bring Christ in captivity and subjection to your quotation of scripture. We only have scripture because of Jesus. The whole of the scripture is meant to lift up Jesus. If you're not lifting up Jesus, I don't care. I don't <laughs> All right? You've gotten things the wrong way around. And Paul is very clear about this. Whatever promises were written, they are yes in him. Yes in him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in Christ, they are yes, not no. Uh, so he's got a very Christocentric understanding of Scripture. Scriptural exegetes caused the early church a lot of trouble. Um, a lot of them didn't convert, and some of them crucified Jesus. We've got to bring our understanding of the of the the Word of God with a small W in subjection and captivity, the Word of God with a capital W, and that's Jesus himself. So this, this is very important. Um, so that's kind of the Jesus train metaphor. Yes. Well, in, and and then really in chapter 24 of, of Pauline dogmatics, you even, you know, you're really widening the lens, rethinking creation. And there you bring another lens to the conversation. Right. Right. And you write there, if something from our present created location is terminated and left behind and only certain parts of it are reconstituted and then transformed, there is a sense in which we are working with a plan A, plan B sequence, stretching these plans out over everything that exists. The technical theological term for this is infralapsarianism, literally the position that views Jesus as the solution to a problem that arrives after creation. He is the resolution of an unforeseen or unavoidable difficulty. He is plan B arriving after infra, meaning below and hence metaphorically later, e.g. in a legal document. A situation characterized by plan A, the original creation, which has now been disrupted. And herein lies the problem. This way of putting things implies fairly directly that God is at bottom either slightly mean or a little stupid or perhaps both and he is arguably somewhat incompetent to boot. Infralapsarian thinking inevitably pays these awful theological prices when we press on it. Yeah, it's not good, is it? Plan A, plan B thinking. Yeah. Um, you don't want Jesus to be plan, plan B, and you don't want Jesus to be plan B and not work. Those, those are both really terrible places to end up. You want Jesus to be plan A all along which means you've got to learn to think about God's ultimate purposes out of eschatology. And a lot of the fathers knew this, but of course we don't read the fathers very much. And I wish I knew more about the fathers. Uh, but we've got to learn to read God's original created purposes out of the resurrected Christ. That's a little bit counterintuitive, and some of the terminology in the New Testament doesn't help us here. When Paul talks about a creation and a new creation, uh, how do we relate those two things together? We've got a new creation that's better than what looks like an old cosmos. He actually tends to talk about cosmos and then new creation. That's a better way of putting things. We don't want to end up with the framework where the cosmos was God's creation and then it went wrong and then we get another creation that's slightly better that fixes it. We, we ultimately do not want to think that way. And in Christ, informed by him, we don't have to. We've got to flip. Flip, flip these things around, look at it in the right way. I, I bumped into a podcast, I think it was, or a lecture by Professor Ramelli the other day. Oh, you mm -hmm. probably said to me. And yes. it's so delightful. I could listen to her all day. And um, she made this point right off the top that the church fathers are always doing their creation out of eschatology. Right. The telos, the telos for them awesome. was the, the end. Well, the end was the beginning of their thinking. Yeah, so probably. they were thinking backwards. Yeah, yeah, and in, they're right. in a big in a big way, and that's what we have to do, and that's what the New Testament is doing at its best. That is exactly how we have to think about this. And what this does is exposes a lot of our thinking, our Christian thinking, and the things that are guiding us. 
gets a little bit shown up down here when we we rely on an account of creation here, which isn't Christological. And what what we end up doing is endorsing kind of structures that God is not endorsing. We do we do quite oppressive things with those structures. So what I would encourage us to do, the Jesus train doesn't want us <laughs> to go to that place. It wants yeah. to steam off on another set of railway tracks and think about where we are. In well, I lived, you know, I lived in Chicago for a while and um, learned the, learned the L system. And when a train comes, it tells you its destination. That's right. So, you yeah. know, you know, so you know where it's going when you get on, when you get, when you get on it. And uh, I like that passage from Isaiah forty six ten about God is the one who knows the end from the beginning. And David Bentley Hart, I think, is perceptive when he says that the final consummation of creation is is not just how creation ends up; it's the revelation of the final moral character of God and what God intended from the beginning. Yep. Yeah. Well, he's he's deeply educated, deeply steeped in the fathers, and he's good theologians. He gets this right. If you want to know what God's original intention was, you've got to look at the way things end up. Or you've got a God that screws up and can't manage to achieve his end, which is a terrible idea. Let, let's run with Jesus as Lord. Let's really believe it. Jesus is Lord. Plan's going to work. <laughs> yeah, I think Jesus, I thought about that, that parable that Jesus tells about nobody, you know, would start to build a tower unless they knew they could finish the tower or they'd kind of be a laughing stock, you know. So right. yeah, God, how much more does... God planned to finish the tower <laughs> and knew, you know, and knew what the tower was going to look like and knew yep. everything about it from, yep. you know, from the beginning. Yep. It's a Jesus tower. <laughs> That's right. Well, let's, and one of the things I appreciate about your work is you're wanting to bring this down into a real life situation. And, and I've been involved in a lot of ministry over the years. You've been involved in prison ministry. I've worked in homeless shelters and I've been around, you know, various recovery groups and, I've also worked in churches where people suffer with a lot of what I'll call salvation anxiety. Often the, most of their spiritual energy is just consumed in whether or not they're going to be saved. And, if, and then if they have a big failure in life, they almost want to throw in the towel and just accept mm. that eventual damnation is inevitable. Mm. So anyway, it seems to me that we need a gospel that's based not— on our ability to achieve salvation, but a gospel based on God's ability to achieve salvation with us. And if we can believe that the gospel is this good news, that God is not with us just if we get things right, but until we get things right, then we can have the resiliency and the confidence that we need to face life's biggest challenges and life's biggest failures. If we can believe that God is bigger than any of our failures, then that kind of grace can actually elicit faith and trust in us, even in the darkest of situations. So yeah. I just think that this all really becomes important uh, at, at, at a practical level when you're dealing with people's real lives. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's exactly right. Yeah, Bart had a lovely way of putting this. He would say, you've got to begin with God's yes. And the yes creates a safe space to hear the no. And the no will actually be heard more clearly and more radically because you began with the yes. But then the no, the no to your sin, to your brokenness, doesn't become become something that breaks your relationship. It becomes something you can face, a truth that you can face about yourself because you're in that place where you're being held. Um, So it's very, very important to get the yes, then the no. And the yes comes from a God revealed by Jesus Christ. If you, well in, in a well-intentioned way, but, but a slightly confused way, arguably, flip that around and start off with a no, with God's judgment, with God's condemnation, and only have a yes later on, you, you destroy that safe place. And you, you create these very anxious people who, who, who fall off the wagon and who look, look inward. You create a kind of a narcissistic, gospel and that that's a tragedy because you, you never really hear the yes from god you never get that security you never get the truth about god um you never really get the truth about your own sin and and you don't deal with it properly so for all these reasons i think what what you're doing is very significant which is recovering and emphasizing this yes this yes that comes first it comes first because it comes at the end which means it comes all the way through and that's the way. That's good news. 
That is that mm-hmm. is the gospel. Well, it seems to me that like the Apostle Paul, you have a message of grace for the world, and it's tremendously encouraging for me and for many of us like me to know that a scholar such as yourself sees these things. And it's also meaningful to me that as intelligent as you are, you haven't made all of this about your intelligence. You insist that what has happened to you is that you've been touched by God. You've been the recipient of a kind of personal experience with God, which has changed your thinking and begun pointing you in this direction years ago. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that in closing. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, everything I say about God through Christ is is ultimately because of, I hope, God touching me and changing me personally. Yeah, no, I... uh, that's, that's very important. And Paul is really clear about this as well. He's the sort of Jesus follower where you don't have to be the smartest guy in the world in the room to make it all work. You can be the dumbest guy in the room and it'll still work. I really believe that. If it's not a gospel that works for the dumbest guy in the room, it's not the gospel. But this does. This does because it gives all the glory to God where it belongs. In terms of personal engagement with this issue. I mean, I was taught various frameworks as a a convert when I was 20. And I think I'm really grateful for that journey because I did have such a terrible struggle with all sorts of things leading up to the kind of moment of conversion. And for a year or two afterwards, for sure, really obviously. And that, I always think, bit of a laugh about this, that made me really connect with what I call my Augustinian side, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is where you're really imprisoned by sin. And it gets, you know, you're caught in its coils. And you know, the only thing that's helping you get out of that, that is helping you get out of that, that is breaking into that place, which is an emotional prison as well as an ethical prison. Is, is the grace of God, uh, which is a gift. It is undeserved. It is liberational. It is compassionate and kind. And that is cracking open your narcissistic prison of introverted silliness. And if you have that deep, visceral sense about God as a God who helps you when you can't help yourself, uh, there's something that just recognizes the incredible benevolence of God. God, my God is benevolent and gracious all the way down and always has been, for sure. I just knew that because of what I'd experienced and, and seen in the lives of my friends and family. And so eventually I think your your theology catches up with your relationship. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me is people whose how people's theology turns out when it, there, it wasn't like I brought a whole bunch to the table. It's when I brought nothing to the table yeah. and then something happened to me. Yeah. And yeah. so that's, that's what happened to Paul. I think that's what happened to you. You weren't trying to, quote, get saved. No, emphatically not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and nor was Paul. <laughs> he, re- he was a major screw-up. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's something there's something about the failure of Peter who denies Christ several times and Paul who's who is persecuting the church that oh, yeah. defeats yeah. you know that defeats the 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 boast the boasting of it. And so for somebody like yourself to you know, I've been around uh, New Testament uh, scholars and it's a very rigorous it's a hard course to go on and you have to make very 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 high level detailed arguments and so sometimes people get, uh, for me, they sort of just get in that lane and they don't do theology. They just do very detailed like word studies and you do theology. You, you, even though you've done all of this incredible scholarship, you still insist that the root of all of it is a revelation is something. It, this is not something you figured out because you're so smart. Yeah. Which is just as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh, yeah for sure i i can't see the point of doing a scholarship if if god isn't in it somewhere and uh, well, i can't see the point in covering that up i think it should just be acknowledged 
and and the connections made clear. And yeah, it is it is a bit unfashionable. But you know, maybe maybe God is at work. Maybe this is becoming something that more and more Bible scholars are able to get in touch with. I hope so. I hope so. I think I think scholarship can be wonderful if it if it's in the hands of a, a devout Augustinian universalist. It, it can be pretty destructive <laughs> if it's detached from that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got you've speaking of things making making things more accessible. You've got there's you're working with John Depew on a more accessible kind of version right. of the Deliverance of God book. Yeah. And, yeah, then, yeah. and mm. could you yeah. say a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm reading Paul in a certain sort of way. I, I see him heading towards this kind of universalist position very I see him as very Christocentric. I see the Holy Spirit as very important. Um, I think there are insights from different traditions of scholars. Some of them are called apocalyptic. And it's a battle because Paul's interpretation and his understanding of the gospel has been sort of captured. It's been captured by a paradigm. I keep talking about these sincere and well-intentioned people who are getting things horribly wrong. Um, it's been captured by this other paradigm, kind of a justification by works of law, not justification by faith crowd. And unfortunately, I see that paradigm, that that model of the gospel as um, unleashing a lot of the problematic consequences that we have talked about. And it, it includes the good news that's really there. It frames it and kind of colonizes it. Mm-hmm. And so I, even though I'm in the minority, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in the minority of one. You keep trying to say the things that you think God has given you to say. And, and, and one of them is this message that actually we think that there are fundamental problems with that way of reading Paul. We think it's actually just wrong. We, we're a minority voice, maybe even a voice crying in the wilderness, but we think it's wrong. And the detailed arguments are too too dense for most good people to, to read. And so John is helping me co-authoring this book to communicate a lot of this stuff more clearly. Um, but is it going to be a deliverance of God for dummies or what's it going to be called? Uh, well, I think we'll probably, at this point, it's just going to be called Beyond Justification, a defense, okay. something like that, a defense of Paul's gospel or something. something. Yeah. Something. When I got your, when I got Deliverance of God, I was a little bit upset because it was 1200 pages and I was looking for, you know, I really, to me, Romans really starts taking off at chapter five. Yeah, there you go. And then, and so I was like, wait, wait a second. I just bought a 1200 page book and it's only on the first four chapters. Yeah. But the point that you really helped me with was in the, to see Romans two uh, and the, and the, uh, the, Oh man, who are you? Oh man. Right. And that that doesn't come out in a lot of translations, no, but you no. really help to see that there's some rhetoric and some parody going yeah. on there that Paul is trying to defeat an argument. Yeah. But we're we've already got these Western lenses on, so we read it completely backwards. Yeah. So right. we get it wrong. But, around. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm glad you got a shorter a shorter version of that argument that's right. coming out. And then beyond that, are you working on a commentary on Romans? Yes, I am. Oh, yeah, once this comes out, there's a commentary. Erdmans will be putting out a commentary in the, I think it's Commentaries in Christian Formation series, CCF. Um, Tom Wright has published a, a commentary in that series. It just started up. He, he, he's written well, a on Galatians, and they've kindly asked me to write one on Romans. But mine is slower, and as I keep mentioning to the good people at Erdman's, you realize that Romans is three times as long as Galatians, and I read really <laughs> as slowly as Tom Wright. <laughs> well, I am glad, personally, that you are a leading Pauline scholar in being asked to write significant commentaries. I'm glad this, I'm, and I'm glad you're going to do something that's on the whole book of Romans. Right, uh, yeah. Finally, we're, together. Mm. yeah. And that's so I'm 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 looking forward. We're all we're Thank all uh, we're all we're all cheering cheering for you from the stands. And I want to thank you for taking some of your valuable time and being with us. I hope that everybody will investigate uh, Douglas Campbell's works. They're all uh, very very interesting, and I think you're doing a tremendous service for us as a as a biblical scholar and and I'll say a practical theologian as well. 
Yeah, well, thank you, David. Thanks for having me on the podcast and all strength to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.